there, Adam. How's it going? Going good. How about you, Conrad? Good. We're dealing with a little tech staff who to get started, but that's all fun. We figure very few participants in the call today. Everything will go very smoothly, and that's not always how it goes sometimes. But <laughs> no. I'm looking forward to this one. Now, last week, we got to do like an alliteration. It was Scott's show. I have no idea what to title this one. So you usually come up with our titles, but Adam's musings or something. I don't know what you're thinking. All right, I'll, I'll have to think of a title for us. <laughs> right on. But this is going to be a fun one. I'm looking forward to it. We'd love to hear how you're doing and what you've been up to since we last chatted. It's been maybe a week or so. And then obviously, we have a really fun show planned today, a bit off topic, if you will, and some respect from our storytelling arc, but more of Adam's story. So I'm looking forward to diving in. But yeah, what have you been up to? What's going on? Yeah, awesome week, actually, on a number of different fronts. So first of all, end of the week here, I'm getting ready to go to Keystone Retreats. So excited for that one. And we'll have Matt on the show in the next couple of weeks here so we can talk about Keystone and I'll be able to share my experience. So looking forward to that one. But a quick sports update. We are winding down the sports season here. Last night, my, my daughter, Senior, headed off to UNC Charlotte in the fall she lost her second round playoffs in soccer to PKs, which is never a great experience, but it was a fun season. Uh, that one comes to a close. The soccer team for the 12-year-old has come to a close. I am happy to say that it does look like we can hold the team together for the fall. Fingers crossed I get some people to sign up for it. And then we'll wind down lacrosse tomorrow. we got two, two games or three games tomorrow at a tournament for lacrosse. And then we'll be headed in the offseason, just making sure that the kids are training in the offseason and hopefully ready for the fall. With that said, this episode is interesting. I think, I don't know what number on, probably like 20, 24 or so. And I think this is the one episode that had me thinking and spinning my wheels more so than any other episode. I don't know that I'm one that's overly comfortable with talking about myself. So we'll see where this one goes. I put together an outline or, or a timeline, I guess I should say, for Conrad about my life. We'll see what Conrad comes up with. I think, Conrad, I'd push it back on you and say, your questions will be the ones that sort of steer this episode. Yeah, no, it's good. You're, this is the deepest outline that you've done. And I said, before we hit record, I'm like, I don't know how we're going to get through all this, but it'll be fun. Let's pick out what's interesting. And with Scott, we certainly didn't get to everything that he's done in his life and his episode. And I said, you know what, if people like it, we'll come back and do a part two, maybe Perfect. 20 more episodes down the road. So if we don't get through everything, um, I think that's fine with me. And the listeners will tell us what they're thinking as well. Yeah, but the way that I look at it is it's hard for me to necessarily talk about myself and my background, but I do think that everyone has a story. So I think that it's always useful especially with a podcast like this, to get to know the people that are behind the podcast a little bit. I find it really interesting when I'm listening to podcasts to get to know the background of the people who are actually out there presenting. So I see value in this. This was a Scott idea, so I'll give him some credit for this. But I see value in, in telling our story and sharing some of that background. But I also think that it really comes down to teasing out the interesting points. So my hope is that if you find it interesting, Conrad, then maybe some people listening will find it interesting. No, I do. And it's always fascinating too. everybody ends up in this industry accidentally, right? Very few people, I feel like I can count them on one hand, have the story where it's, oh, yeah, of course, my mom was in this business, the agency I used to work for the owner of that company, his wife, like the, his, her mother had started like a vacational company in Ocean Isle Beach, and then she born into it. But that's very uncommon. Like I said, yeah, I not very common. Yeah, Although not very I common. Say, we've coined them as the 2019ers. I think that 2019ers are the start of where people got really deliberate about their decisions to get into it. We'll see if the 2019ers can last. But I think, yeah, traditionally, most people fell into this industry accidentally. Yeah, that's a, I don't know if that fits exactly the timeline of this episode. We'll put a pin in that, which is what's the cohort of, like you said, lifetime sort of commitment, if you will, or what's the long-term commitment that some of these folks have who came in recently? Yeah. I suspect a lot of them have already moved on, uh, especially the ones that are doing <laughs> these more 
how can I say this in a fair way, shifting foundation business models, like the arbitragers and those yeah. types of people who are like, you still see them to this day. Oh, it's easy. And it's so simple. And this and that very different from the professional property management world. So we'll get there. Yeah, on that <laughs> note, I can definitely tell you the conversations I'm having with people that might fall into the category of newer to the industry, but as well as established managers. And we're out there talking about getting inventory for, uh, for TAN. And the sentiment is definitely changing. There's a change in tides with the industry, people recognizing the challenges that are ahead for this year and probably stretching into next year as well. I guess obviously obviously I was around in 07. I'll be transparent. I was in college at that time frame. So it's not really like I remember or I was in high school, excuse me, in 07. I didn't go to graduate high school until 09 and then went into college. So this whole recession that occurred, I was around, I was an adult, but I didn't really process it. I wasn't really in the workforce, obviously, at that time. Right. And I think it's interesting now to see like an actual kind of recession being in like the workforce and having a career and having an agency that I run and watching people be react to it. And I've always been told by, let's say, people who tell me about investing, hey, would you be comfortable if all the money that you're investing went down half in value. And I've always said, yes, yeah, I'd be comfortable because I understand. I've watched that happen to my dad and like he just stayed steady. It all came back and it was fine. And I felt the same way that I felt like I would be the same way. Now that it's happened, I'm like, I actually was right. I feel like I I'm, can handle this. I'm emotionally stable to watch like a 401k that I have crater in value and lose tens of thousands of dollars and just be like, eh, oh, whatever, it'll come back. But people like clients that I have, that is not the case. Some clients we have that are seeing down years, it's almost like they're going through the stages of grief. And the first yeah. one of, of grief isn't a denial. <laughs> you just, it, no, everything's fine. Like I, I see that a little bit right now. Some people are just in denial. They don't want it to be, uh, they don't want the, the party to be over, if you will. They're just- No, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think that you and I, young enough, I'll put us both in the cat, same category, even though I've probably got you by 15, 20 years. But I think that you and I can look at a downturn like that and know, hey, we've got enough time in our life that we can recover. You look at some baby boomers, our parents, and they cut their 401k by half or their retirement funds by half. And that's a very concerning situation. I can remember in 2008, those people like my parents in that situation were very concerned. Now, I think 2008 was, every recession is unique and different. I think 2008 was a little bit different. I think that you could see the tide turning relatively quickly, at least in the vacation rental world. That was when I was entering this industry. And it was nerve wracking for most of the second half of 2008, but we came out of it relatively quickly. And to be honest, the industry has grown from that point. So like at the start of 2009, up until really now, the industry has done nothing but go up. And for a few years, the last couple of years, we can even refer to them as fake years. I heard a couple of people talking about it last year or last week when I was talking with someone. I think there's reality to that. Those were not the norm. And I think we're hitting a point where people are starting to recognize not only were those two years not the norm, but really what is the norm going to be as we go forward? And this one's harder to see. I don't know that we turn the corner as, as quickly as we have in the past on some of these. So it is an interesting time. Now, I would agree with you that a lot of the people we've talked to, because I've been trying to push these buttons, the downturn benefits TAN in the sense that we are looking to help that affordable market. And because the affordable market has such thin margins, my thesis is that as managers enter some sort of a downturn, the affordable end of this industry is going to be threatened because they're not going to want to put the extra time and effort into those properties that they're going to need because the margins are thinner. And I'm for that. I think that makes sense from a revenue management perspective, from a business perspective. Go focus on the larger homes that you can get more revenue for. So I've, as soon as I entered TAN, November-ish, that was my mindset. And I've been trying to push these buttons with people for the last six, eight months because I saw this coming and I wanted to see if other people were seeing it coming and I wanted to get that inventory. So yes, I would agree with you for the last six, eight months, I think people have been in that denial phase of, oh no, things are going to be the same. No, but I think they're starting to turn the corner and starting to recognize that it's not the same. 
I have one client in particular I'm thinking of who basically is keeping the rates the same, but is doing lots of discounting. So in their head, it's, yeah, but like in theory, I can stop the discounting and the rates will stay the same as they were last year. Yeah. And it's, it's a little bit of a tough conversation to have at times where it's like, yep, I think we need to keep the discounting going. That's what's working. And moving. Now, here's you know, one moving. signal that I saw in 2008 that I've not seen yet, but it could be on the horizon. We'll see if it happens. It is okay. the discounting. So in 2008, once a market discounted, so once one of the people in the market, and I'll just use the Outer Banks as an example, once one of the large managers in the Outer Banks started to discount really heavily, everybody else followed suit. Now, this was before revenue management, so maybe that has changed things, Yeah, but everyone else followed suit. And then what started to happen is the guests started to recognize that discounts were happening. So the guests started to come in and push for discounts even heavier. So every phone call, and this was also a time before online reservations and large OTAs, so times are different. But what I would say is that when we see guests starting to really push for discounts and saying, look, how much less can you give me? I think that's a bad signal for the industry that we are discounting too heavy. And I think this, there's a few layers to this that we can dive into. And then we'll get to your history, I promise. We're, gonna, we're going back I, I a little bit. We'll work it all together. We're going we're gonna to go back deeper, don't worry. But the interesting part to me is that like you said, the market's different, but uh, the demand is different. The individual homeowner that got into it, the 2019ers that have got into it since then, they probably are willing to take a lot less. They're probably willing to take a significantly lower amount of money than they probably should be charging to not lose a property. People online, I feel like, talk about this. Oh, there's going to be mass, um, foreclosures and things like that. And I don't know if I see that. Like I look at markets and I look at real estate demand and things like that. And I don't actually believe that's the case. I don't see these examples where there's 50 properties that were short-term rentals or vacation rentals or hesitate to call it this, but Airbnbs in a market and all of a sudden no one can make the mortgage payments and they're all for sale. I'm not seeing that. And I look at a lot of different data points across dozens, multiple dozens of locations all over the US. Yeah, um, I don't see that yet. I do think that no. people who bought too high and people that are saying, my wife's a photographer and she takes pictures for, for a lot of these 2019ers that are listening on Airbnb. And yep. she's starting to hear that. Oh my gosh, we're not, the I thought the rents would be so much higher. I thought these were just going to cash flow. So we, I'm starting to pick up on senses of that, but I would agree with you that I don't see these foreclosures coming anytime soon. I think the market, the real estate market is staying high. So I don't think that. So they can still dump it, even if it's like less than they want to. They're not in this like horrible financial situation where they bought it for pick a number, 500. Okay. Maybe it's, they assumed it was going to rent for a hundred a year. It's actually only renting for 60 a year or 50 a year. They go, ah, let me just dump it, get rid of it. But they probably can get their 500 out or close to it. So it may and be, maybe that's why yeah. 2008 felt so different is because the banks were getting crushed so fast that everyone got hit so fast. Whereas this one might be protracted where we're going to have to deal with this for longer times as we get through these stages. That's a logical, that's a logical guess. And time will tell, like it's hard to predict exactly what the demand curve is going to do. But I will say this, I saw some data that someone had shared on Twitter. I'll try to hunt it down and put it in the show notes. Sometimes when I scroll past stuff on Twitter, it's like impossible to find it again now yeah. with that dynamic feed. But anyways, it was actually sharing, I think it was Redfin data and it was sharing second home, typical vacation home mortgages. And they were pretty high in 2019. They were actually ascended. They died at first in 2020. Then they picked up quite a bit in the spring of 2020. And they just been ascending like crazy all yeah. the way through now, all the way through the last little bit. And all of a sudden, whoosh, like the last six months, it went from them taking hundreds of thousands of applications on a US basis for these second home mortgages to I think I saw there was one market where they didn't take a single second home mortgage. I think it was like a relatively modest sized Florida wow. Beach market where there was not one person who wanted to come in and buy a second home with interest rates at whatever, five, six, seven percent and the property is still staying pretty high in value. And that seems to be the rub of it. Someone shared this on Twitter in that thread where they were talking about it and saying, think about it, right? You bought a property in 21, you could buy a property for $300,000 that was very much out there. Their interest rate was between two and three 
50%, somewhere in that range. Your carrying cost of the property was about 2000 And if you operate it properly, you should be able to get four to 5000 a month on average. And he's, those weren't outlandish numbers. Those were just like regular every day. Pretty much every do, everybody doing it at that time was able to get those numbers. Now the purchase price of the same property is not three hundred; it's four fifty. The interest rate is not two percent; it's five percent. And he's so your carrying cost is forty five hundred dollars a month, and your annual your monthly rent average average obviously seasonality might be five thousand. So why go through all the headache for a five hundred bucks a month of potential cash flow, and then one repair would kill you the whole year? So I think the other ingredient <laughs> to that. So I think yes, interest rates have gone up, the prices have gone up, so the cost of carrying has obviously gone up. But the other oh, thing that that I think has changed, or at least these 2019ers are starting to open their eyes to, is Airbnb is not as easy as it was. So these guys are all, they have no client acquisition costs, right? All of these people who are relying on Airbnb, they're paying 3% to get their clients. And it's not, easy. Credit card fee. They got their PMS, they got their marketing, they've got their reservation system, they've got their communication system. Everything's within Airbnb for 3%. That's insane. So when you increase carrying costs, and you get Airbnb to start adding fees and change their structure, and you're not getting the same reservations through Airbnb, your numbers change tremendously. Yeah, that, that's actually, we've touched on the arbitrage model in previous episodes, and I've always turned my nose up at it. There are people who can do it well, to be clear. And I've worked sure. with one of them before, a good operator in that space who does a really good job. So this isn't a, this isn't all whatever our bad commentary. But the problem with the, that I've always seen with it is that over time, I feel like that was always what was going to happen is that you were making yeah. money in the middle, you were paying this and you were getting this. And I feel like over time, as more properties come in, this number would go down. The revenue number would potentially slide down. And as more landlords figured out what you were doing and how much money you were making, they would charge you more in rent. And it just seemed like one of those scenarios where these numbers were going to touch, essentially, and your margins were just going to essentially get squeezed out. And so that's why I just think it's one of the hardest paths to go down. And not that this is arbitrage that we're discussing here, but it's the same problem, which is that your, like you said, carrying costs go up, your fees from Airbnb may go up, maybe even demand stays similar or flat, or it goes down slightly, but you just can't, you can't handle it. You can't handle an additional thousand dollars over here, an additional 8% over here, it just gets compressed to nothing. And uh, they're not building these numbers into their models. That bank in San Francisco that wasn't accounting for inflation or whatever it was, the small detail that they didn't account for. And there was a bank (laughs) run and they had same concept, right? (laughs) These guys are not building these changes into their model. And I think that we've seen it before. Real estate arbitrage is difficult because there are so many variables and the numbers are always going to be in flux. Now, this is one comparison I'll give to Tan and why Tan is different than that. We're not looking to move our numbers on a regular basis because of the market changes. We know what we can pay in a certain market to rent that particular inventory to bring it into the club. And that remains constant. And we also have on the other side, a group of 80,000 people that are ready to rent it. So when you look at the difference between what we do and how we can stay consistent for 30 years, it's much different than the people who are finding an opportunity at the right time in a market to go out and play that arbitrage game. I think if you do that, you just need to recognize it could be a short game. To yeah, your yeah. point, there are winners and people who do it well, but it could be short. It's like a, it's like the people, I went to a Braves game at the old stadium before they shut down after one of the VRMA events. And it was yeah. good. It was fun to go out there. And it was like a summer, I think it was a pretty hot day. And we went out there and there was guys selling water bottles for three bucks a pop. And I went, oh man, this guy's spending 10 bucks or sorry, 10 cents on a water bottle selling it for three bucks. What amazing margins. And then yeah, that guy makes money for 25 minutes after the game ends and everybody walks out of the Braves stadium and then he goes home and does whatever else, right? So in other words, it was a flash in the pan. It was a very short period of time. He can get the super high leverage, the super high margin on a bottle of water. And it's not worth much after that. So that's exactly. what I take on. Yep. Yeah. Let's switch gears a little bit then, because we have a whole outline here. I don't know if I want to go all the way back to the beginning. No, I, yeah, don't feel, you jump in as whatever you think is interesting. 
Okay. I have a few things that I that I bolded in my in my notes here from the outline. Something about a graveyard. I'm very concerned about that. So I don't. That's not all the way back to the beginning, but it seems pretty far back. So is this a part of your uh, part of your feeling? No, it's pretty. I so what I was doing when I put together that outline. Again, it's hard to think about what people might want to hear from me or think about my background and my story. But what I was putting in there, I was trying to add a lesson or a memory from each sort of stage of my life as I went through it. And that was just an interesting time where I grew up in, in Easton. Conrad and I are, are both mass holes, have migrated away from Massachusetts. But I was living, yeah. and it's interesting now that you asked this question, it just dawned on me. So I was living on Elm Street and this is in the 80s, which was Nightmare on Elm Street was a big horror movie at the time. And I was living next to this big graveyard. But the graveyard did not make me nervous. It was a big old farmhouse. And it was this old closet that was long and dark. That was the scary part about my memory. And this is a long time ago. This is from when I was like two to, I don't know, seven. But the graveyard did not scare me. A big old closet did. But what I will say is looking back on childhood at that time, it was definitely a different time. I look at the four kids that I've got living in the house and the devices in their face and how we're living our <laughs> life today. I, again, two to, two to seven, so a five-year period. And I would go out for hours. There was just woods behind the house. And I would go out for hours by myself, unaccounted for, lost in the woods, not in the sense of lost like I can't get home, but just walking around, not really knowing where I am and finding my way back to the house without any concern for myself or for my parents wondering where I was. So I guess I long for those days a little bit. It's worth it to push the kids out of the house. Yeah, that's funny. I feel like I'm of an interesting era. I was born in 91, so I'm 31. I turned 32 in a few weeks. But my my memory of that is that I remember a time before the internet. I think people yeah. a little bit younger than me probably don't remember a time before the internet. And I remember getting dial-up. You know, whereas I think, like you said, you're a few years older than me. So certainly you went through this time probably with without that kind of even being an option. And I think yep. that's a good thing. Like my son's the same way, he's seven. And he wants to play on his phone and play Minecraft all the time. But it's not too hard to get him out of the house. Hey, let's go do this. Let's go to the park. Let's go do that. But his default well, I think it takes active parents Minecraft. who are pushing that. I think as parents, we need to instigate that. We need to get them out of the house to do those things. If you let it sit, then it's going to it's gonna happen the way it's going to happen. And I love build quickly. I think that's something that learned over time. And I think we've got to be active to build the right habits. Yeah. So I'm skipping to the sports section, although we certainly would love to be open to hearing stories about your family as we go along here. But uh, you always talk about sports updates. It's always fun to share. You and your kids, I think, have that interest in common. But this was early for you. You were into soccer and basketball and things like that. So what was your sport? What were you better at between those two? By far, soccer. I look back now and I I wish that we had lacrosse back in the day. That was just not a sport that I had access to when I was growing up. But I'm watching my 12-year-old do it. And I really wish that I had an opportunity to play lacrosse. I would have had a lot of fun doing that. I think that there's value in kids playing multiple sports. And this probably goes for everybody, just having different experiences in life and bringing them together. I think that's where it's Munger or the other guy who's with him. I can't remember his name. Yeah. They talk about multidisciplinary learning and how you bring all these pieces together and you find these threads and you bring them together. And I believe in that wholeheartedly across the board from all learning and education. But from a sports perspective, I think there's a lot of value in playing a variety of sports because you're using your body in different ways. You're learning how to be on a field in different ways. And I also see a lot of value in team sports. I think that there's huge value in being on a team, having an opportunity to be a part of that team and understand how you integrate and interact with that team, but also the potential for leaders to rise within a team and for people to see their chance to become leaders either on or off the field. But soccer was definitely my sport growing up. Basketball, I didn't even learn how to play basketball until I was sixth grade. Like literally couldn't shoot a basketball. I was playing with with younger kids my first time in rec park. Like I wasn't good enough to even play my age group. But I did end up catching on and ended up being a captain my senior year. But soccer was something that I gravitated to very quickly and very early. 
And I moved from, I mentioned Easton. I moved over to Norton in Massachusetts when I was in third grade. And in Easton, soccer had started earlier. So rec soccer was earlier. So I had probably had a two-year head start on everybody at Norton. When I got there, I was the one who had played soccer before and no one else had played soccer. So it gave me a head start in town soccer, which I think as a result of that, I put a lot more focus into soccer over time. And I I would go out and practice. and, And that's what I try to help my team and my kids understand is, It's one thing to go to practice and go to games and work real hard, but that's not where champions are built. That's not where people who are good at sports are built. It's consistency off the field, playing at home. And I had the drive to to play and practice by myself. And I built a a kickboard in my backyard so I could go out and pass and shoot in my backyard. And I was able to make it to, to Bridgewater State and play for Bridgewater State. I played, I don't know if you remember, do you remember the Bay State games when you were in Massachusetts? That's not super familiar to me. It was like a little Olympics that they had just for Massachusetts. And you'd segment the state into these different areas and then everybody would have their team. So I played in that for a couple of years. And my coach of that was the coach of Bridgewater State. So I was able to meet him and go over to Bridgewater State. Once I I knew that I was going to be going to Bridgewater State because he asked me relatively early, let me know that I could play. I didn't even look at another school. I applied to Bridgewater State. I knew I could play. I knew it was an easy application. So I went to Bridgewater State for a couple of years. Played soccer there for a couple of years. Eventually got a little burned out. Hindsight, I think that I wish I had played a little bit longer, but ended up transferring up to UMass. D1 decided that I didn't want to walk on. I knew some guys that I played with some guys that were on that team. So I felt confident that I probably could have played at that level. But I think drinking beer and hanging out with my friends probably took precedence, unfortunately. <laughs> that's the that's a common story. But I'm with yeah. you. I think there's a certain there's a certain, like you said, commitment that it takes to get good at something. And ultimately, I forget exactly the statistic and how it goes, but it's something like 10,000 hours or something like that that you put into a craft and you can get top 1% of the world. The trouble, of course, is that as you go up in levels, that's what I found too in my, my, yeah. my sport that I chose, which was golf, is that, man, I'm like, in Massachusetts, I was great because the competition wasn't that stiff. Get to South Carolina. Ooh, these kids play all year round. I can't play all year round a lot more competition okay i'm still top 10 my junior year then senior year it's ah man these everybody just keeps getting better and better so going up each rung I, but i think it's good for you i think it's healthy for you to see that business is the same way right there's people that are absolute killers and they build these massive businesses but you don't actually have to be like top one percent to be really successful you could be that's best. where i would go with that too try yeah. to be the best you can and you don't have to be that top percent but i would agree with you once you get up to that higher level you start to see how good these players are yeah. and it's astounding i play with some guys that ended up in the mls and they were mm-hmm. just at another level they were faster. They could jump higher. My cousin ended up playing. He was a captain of Dartmouth, made it to NCAA Sweet 16. And when he graduated, he couldn't even get an invite into minor league teams. That, that shows you how competitive it is once you get into that upper level. Yeah. But it's like I said, that's how life is too, right? <laughs> Ultimately, yeah. when you look at people that reach that reach that crest, there's something to it. What changed then? So I, I see the note in here about leaving for the Marine Corps. I think maybe we've, I don't know if we've talked about this much, so I really don't know much about this part of you or your military experience. So I'd love yeah, to hear sure. a little bit. So I grew up, my, my grandfather was in the Marines for 20 plus years. So I grew up with him as my role model. And pro- I'd say probably my biggest role model. And it just was something that I was around all the time. And I think that this is probably what the Marines rely on for recruiting is somebody in your family was in the Marines and then you decide you're going to be in the Marines. So there wasn't a question if I was going to join a military, there was only one that I was going to join and it ended up being the Marines. And it was a sort of a spur of the moment uh, idea. I just went over to a recruiter and I'll tell you, if you have kids and you send them to a recruiter and you send them, especially by themselves, they're going to come home with signing a contract because that's what recruiters do. So PSA If you're going to send a kid into a recruiter, go with them if you don't want them to come home and have a signed contract. Because I went in for an hour. I came out with a signed contract. I was not even 18 yet. I was signed at the beginning of my senior year. 
I left six days after graduation for boot camp. I don't know if they still do it. I would guess they, they do. But if you're going into the reserves and you're going into college, you can split your training. So you go down to boot camp. I went to Paris Island, did that for three months. And then I came back in time to start at Bridgewater, start playing soccer. So I, I played soccer and then I went to drill, which is one month or one weekend a month and then two weeks a year. Uh, you go and you're active for that time period. So I went for drill my first year. And then the second summer, I went to North Carolina, Camp Lejeune, a small base called Camp Geiger down there to go to my school. So everybody has an MOS, military occupational specialty. Mine was heavy guns. I got to fire 50 cals. I got to fire Mark 19s, which is like an automatic grenade launcher. And then this other gun is similar to a, like a rifle, but it can shoot really far like a 50 cal. Now, the other thing I'll say about recruiters is they're going to steer you into something that is infantry and fighting on the ground, right? So I had a choice. I'm 17. I'm committing to this guy who I don't know in less than an hour. And I had a choice between going in to be a mechanic in Motor T or to go into heavy guns. 17-year-old boy, his only thought is I want to go shoot some big guns. I've got zero inclination to carry guns, have guns. I've got no guns in my house. But I chose to shoot heavy guns, which was a pretty fun thing to do for six years while I was in the Marines. But if I had gone the other route, if I was thinking more long-term, I would have recognized that understanding mechanics and understanding how to fix vehicles probably would have been a worthwhile job to have, or at least a background. The other thing is that from a safety perspective, if you're shooting heavy guns, you're the first guy in who's going out into the lines. And then Motor T, you're in the background and you're fixing trucks. Now, what I will say is I timed this perfectly. And I remember being in boot camp and having this thought. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in for six years. When was the last time there wasn't a war for six years? <laughs> Luckily, I timed it perfectly where I didn't get activated. I got out in June of 2001. 9-11 happened in September of 2001. My unit was activated probably within six to 12 months after 9-11. And fortunately, I didn't have to go. But then they were activated again, and they had to go over to Iraq. So I'm, I know that there are guys that were in my unit that, that saw some real action. I'm fortunate that I didn't have to do it. But I would say two things on that experience. One, I think there's a lot of value in pushing yourself at a young age, like 18, to go out and do something that's really hard and something that you don't know that you can do, because I think it forces you to grow up. And, it, and when I look back in hindsight, there was a lot of value in me maturing at 18 and going through that experience. I would not necessarily push my kids towards the military. I don't think they need to go out and have that experience in order to grow up. In fact, I'm actively saying go out and do other things. But I do see value. If that's the path that you're on, just choose wisely. Make sure that you think it through. Make sure you're thinking about it long term and make sure you're not making decisions at the spur of the moment at 17 in an hour in a recruiter's office. <laughs> yeah. that's. Does any 17-year-old make a good decision in an hour? No. I can't think from start to finish. No. There, count on one hand, you know, how many have actually occurred that it's been a good decision the rest of Maybe girls. I do think that girls tend to mature faster. Yeah, I would say boys, definitely not. <laughs> I always joke. There's, I have more females on my team than males on my team. And one time, one of my female employees asked me, and I'm like, women are smarter. Why wouldn't I hire more women? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's my opinion, at least. But anyways, yeah. All right. So you've got through this process. Like you said, you avoided any, maybe any sort of extreme violence or anything like that. It was more so just being ready. And I guess if you stay ready or if you're, you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. So that was a good thing. Yep. And you kind of exited this. I, I want to go back a little bit though. The major, why the major of poli sci? That stuck out to me. We, not that we need to talk politics, but I guess I'm just more curious what the, which made you choose that when you went back? No, I love it. You're digging into good questions. So this is why I was hoping to put that timeline and have you tease out things that could be interesting. That's another one. Hindsight, it, I didn't want to choose a major. I've, I, 
And you'll see in a couple different spots in there that I think I probably had a hard time when I was younger making some concrete decisions and saying, look, this is my path and I'm going to stick with it. So when I was in college, I knew I didn't have to choose a major until I got to my junior year. So I was in no rush of choosing a major. And it really came down to philosophy or poli sci. And in my mind, I thought poli sci is a better avenue if I decide that I want to go to law school. Now, why did I want to go to law school? I don't know. It's just another step in a path that it seemed like, oh, if I do that, then you know I'll be on a good path for life. So I chose poli-sci. Hindsight, I really wish that I had chosen philosophy. I think that I would have enjoyed philosophy a lot more and, and thinking through bigger challenges in the world other than just looking at historically, you know, what politics was. We didn't even talk about that much current events in poli-sci. It's more history. But the other thing I would say, and, and this was why I chose those two, is I was looking for something that I could control the workload. And philosophy and political science is an area where you have to read and you have to write. Well, that's something that I know that I can control. It's not a situation where you've got to go in and you've got to test on a certain date or you've got to do a lot of studying to prep for that. So my perspective on college and trying to choose that, choose that major was, what are the areas that I know that I can control? And writing and reading is one are areas that I felt like, hey, I can do that when I want to do it and make sure it's on my timeline. The other thing that I really, in hindsight, look back on on the choice is that I think writing is a very important skill to have, especially these days. We're doing more and more of it online. So when I was looking at what I was trying to do, it did have a strong component of writing. And I'm happy that I did that. I think that writing and trying to express yourself is an important part of really all of life, but especially business. But you do end up in law school later on. So bring me ahead a few years. I'll skip ahead past the first job. Maybe we can come back to that. Yeah, no worries. So that was that, yeah. out of school, sales, did some of that, bounced around. Yeah. Got it. My first real exposure to hospitality was during that time where I was bouncing mm-hmm. around and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. So I entered it into a couple different bars in Boston as a bar back and a bartender. And that was definitely worthwhile. One, to see restaurants and hospitality, but two, to start to get a feel for what that hospitality and stuff, serving others is. But while I was doing that, I was trying to have a backup plan. So I was trying to open a fitness center and I was getting business loans and trying to acquire a couple of fitness centers, but I felt like I needed a backup plan because there wasn't a clear path as to how I was going to be successful doing that. So I ended up starting for my LSATs and did decent. Another one of those things where if you're going to be successful at it, you really got to go out and you got to work on your own. So I got an online course and I just worked it every day to study for LSATs. I did decent on it. I took them in May and in June or maybe July, whenever we got our results back, a couple of schools were contacting me saying, hey, we'll give you we'll give you a scholarship if you want to come. And Hofstra Law School is one of those in Long Island. And at the time, it was like, oh my gosh, people are giving me money to go to school. This is amazing. Let's go. Now, hindsight, I think that school, especially law school, is a business and they're just trying to fill their role and they'll give a little money to make sure that you can come. So anyway, I moved really quickly. I took the LSATs in May and I was starting at Hofstra in, the, in September or, or late August, whatever it was. Another one of these situations where I don't think I fully thought out the big picture. It was like, hey, this is just the next step. Let's just go to law school and see what happens. I, I did. I made the dean's list. I made law review. I did really well while I was there. Another situation where reading and pushing yourself beyond what you think you can do, and especially writing, changed the way I write, changed the way I read. I went for probably, I don't know, two and a half months where I worked seven days a week, however many hours I was working, because that's the demand that law school has, especially towards the end. So it was good to push myself in the same sense that I'd push myself at book at boot camp. It was worthwhile to push myself. But I got towards the end of the year and I started to recognize that what happens in law school is you take the bar in the state that you go to school in. Now, my intention was not to live in New York City or to live in New York. I wanted to go to law school and then determine what I wanted to do. 
and my doors were going to be pretty tight as to what my next steps were because I was going to law school in, in Long Island. The next step from Long Island was going to be New York City. And I was probably going to be working 80 hours a week as a New York City attorney. And I realized that that was not the path that I wanted to go on. So I made a pretty difficult decision to, to leave after one year. And I ended up going back to Boston. My, my family had left at that point. They migrated south. My sister had moved down to Virginia and my parents followed suit once she had a baby. So I was back in Boston. Safety net was gone, living with friends, back in the bar scene, trying to just make some money while I started a, a real estate investment company. It went really well, recognized that 2008 was on the horizon. So looked for a new market, ended up bouncing down to Charlotte because that was a really strong market. Now the caveat to that, and it was the right move at the time because it was a strong market, but fast forward to 2008, which we've already touched on. The reason that Charlotte was a strong market is because Bank of America was headquartered there and Wachovia was headquartered there. So yeah. you've got all of this banking community there that's supporting the economy. In 2008, those banks fell really quickly. So not only did the economy fall, but the Charlotte market fell pretty quickly too. In addition to that, the partner, the business partner that I moved down there with, he just bailed on me one night, was back in Boston, went on a trip, and I got a call Sunday night saying that he was back in Boston and he was done. I was like, ah, all right. And we owned eight houses at that point that I had to unravel. And so that's a catalyst that I unraveled in Charlotte and then ended up on the Outer Banks from there. Yeah. What brought you to the Outer Banks? So was it just that, that job, that role that you had in the marketing side of things? or No, well, not I really. Guess, so this yeah. is an interesting process too. And I think that there's a lesson, at least for me, definitely one that I share with my kids and maybe one that's more applicable outside of this as people see a relatively difficult job market ahead. I ended that and I know that I wanted to get out of Charlotte because I didn't necessarily want to be in Charlotte. It was a great place to live, but it wasn't where I wanted to end up. I just went there because it was the right real estate market for me to go invest in. So I started to look around to beaches. I want to get back to beaches. Now, my, my family had already migrated to Virginia, but I was looking everywhere, California, Hawaii, I, Bermuda, whatever, Caribbean, wherever I wanted to go, I wanted to figure out if I could get to a place where I could live in the beach. My thought was, why am I going to I might as well choose where I want to live and then find a job in a place that I want to live. And I knew that I wanted to be back at a beach. I knew that I wanted to surf. I'd, I'd learned how to surf, you know, during that period where I was in some transitions up in Boston and Rhode Island. So I wanted to get back to surfing. I put out over 300 resumes. I can remember every day getting up and treating, looking for a job like it was a job. And I had applied to over 300 different places and I was not getting much traction. Now, again, this was heading into 2008, so it was not necessarily a great job market. But then I ended up getting one uh, on the Outer Banks from Craigslist. I ended up with Seaside Vacations. They were looking for a marketing person. I'd been doing marketing for the last five years or so with the real estate investment side as we were buying homes and renting and flipping. There was obviously a marketing component to that. So they saw that background, took a chance on me. I ended up moving to the Outer Banks, which was perfect because my parents and my sister were in Virginia, so it was close. So even though I was looking at every beach market, I ended up at the beach market that I wanted to be in. I ended up at the beach market that made the most sense for me. I'd been here a couple times where just on vacation. Just vacationing was my first introduction to the vacation rental industry. I didn't really know what I was getting into when I took the job at Seaside. Within the next six months or so, I was promoted to the director of marketing for them. And then I stayed there for the next five years, learning about the industry and really shifting their focus from probably 90% print. This is, this is an inflection point in the industry, inflection point with the internet where I just happened in the right time. I was already focused on the internet because it was a cheap way for me to market for the investment company that we had. 
So I was already headed down that path, but I was able to take them from 90% print advertising to 90% online advertising, saving a ton of money, being first to the market out on online, doing some things that other people in the outer banks weren't doing. So with a company of about 250 homes at the time, I think it was, we were mm-hmm. outperforming all of the other companies with from a marketing perspective and especially an online marketing perspective. Yeah, you have a note in here a little bit up, up higher on the outline where you said the Outer Banks felt like home or you felt something different there. I've been to the Outer Banks a dozen times, but I guess my trouble is that I go for a conference or I have a client up there and I go up there and I spend a day or two there. I meet with the client, I stay inside most of the time, then I leave. So uh, help me understand it. It seems a great beach. I like going there, don't get me wrong. But what is it about the Outer Banks for those who haven't been? How could you explain the area? And I actually don't know exactly where you live in the Outer Banks. Could you share the town if you're comfortable doing so? Like, oh, yeah, sure. Places? So yeah. I, one thing, I and I mentioned this earlier, I had a hard time making some concrete plans when I was younger. I was just out there looking for stuff. And I was young and I didn't really have anything tying me down. I think that's a good time to take chances in your life and go out and explore and see what happens. And I moved 15 times in 13 years after I graduated high school. I was just moving like crazy. And each one of them, it's interesting. It wasn't like I had this mindset of, oh, I'm just going to keep moving. Each one of them was, in my mind anyway, was, hey, this is my next move. I'm going to be here for a while. And it, it wasn't. I just ended up going on and doing other things. So I never really felt like I was in a place where I was going to stay for a long time for whatever reason. And then I got to the Outer Banks. And one, I think it was a hard search to get here, as I just mentioned, working for six months, trying to find the right job. It was nice to be in a place where I felt like I I was back to one, the beach, relatively close to my family, which I hadn't been close to in, in a few years. But to your point about the Outer Banks and why it, it felt so right for me was it's a unique location in a number of different ways. So first of all, it's remote, right? You're removed from Virginia by two hours and we're getting more and more amenities. Like we've got Target came in this year. So we're feeling more like we're an established market, but it's always been, that's the charm of it. But it's really unique in the history, right? First flight is here. The Wright brothers were here. There's a ton of history from World War II when the graveyard of the Atlantic, going back to all the first settlement. You've got the pilgrims would be argued that they were the first settlement, but down here, you'd argue that there's the lost colony that was the first settlement. So you've got a ton of history here. And then at the same time, you've got all of this amazing nature that you don't have exposure to. And that one of the values is because it's remote, you have exposure to this. You can drive on the beach here six months out of the year. You have the ability to go into a four-wheel drive area where they've got houses and you can just park on the beach or take a house and live there for a week and walk out on the beach that feels like it's your own beach. You can drive down to the national seashore and just park and walk over the dunes. And you will literally be the only person on the beach in the middle of July. Like, so you can find your own place here. I don't think there are many places in the United States, I don't know, world, that you have this much access to private beaches like that. We've had some friends. There's a Coast Guard base that's relatively close. It's in Elizabeth City to the Outer Banks, about a half hour or so from the Outer Banks. So a lot of the Coast Guard people live here. And we have some Coast Guard friends from Hawaii. And they had lived in a number of different places. And they said that the Outer Banks reminded them more so of Hawaii than anywhere else that they have met. In the sense that you have this really great beach culture. It feels like a beach town. You've got people who are really artistic and are looking to have that sort of natural beach life. You have all of that exposure, but yet you still have access to Virginia in an hour and a half away. So I see a lot of value in that. Now, the other part of me feeling like it's home, I think it was just the part of my life, right? I was hitting 30 years old. I was getting to a place where I wasn't quite exploring as much as I, I had been in the past. And I started to get to a place where I think I was ready to settle down. Fortunately, I met my wife relatively quickly while we were here. And it it just felt like the right situation to to be here for an extended time. 
no Tinder. How do you meet a, a wife in 2008 without an app? How does that work? Look, in a bar funny. or something? No, that's funny. It's it was not, not a bar. It was not a bar, but it was similar. So it was MySpace, okay. if you can believe that. I was, if you look back, if you think back, and it might be a while since anyone even thought about MySpace, but in MySpace, you used to be able to see who was around you. It wasn't like Facebook where you had to be a friend in order to talk to somebody. It was like you could go on and you could just see who was around. And I will say that it was not me. My wife reached out to me relatively uh, early on and connected with me on MySpace. So she slid in the DMs, as the kids she call did. it nowadays. Yeah, prior, back, prior to DMs being a thing, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's a trailblazer. Shout out to, right. to Whitney. Yeah, for That's being right. there. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's nice. We could go different directions now with the kids. And I definitely want to love to hear more about your kids. And obviously, you love sharing the, the news about them and their sports. And that's fantastic to hear. But the Outer Banks piece is really interesting to me, for sure. Because I think it, it speaks to, like you said, you went to all these places, but then when you saw it, that's my sense of everything we've talked about so far is that when you see it, but you don't mind looking and trying a lot of different things to see if it is the thing. That's the lessons that I've gotten so far. Honestly, I appreciate, are, I appreciate yeah. when people give me feedback because I don't know that I self-analyze enough to know what I'm doing or why I'm doing things. So yeah, I think yeah. that's a good assess- assessment. I think that, I, and I probably still do this to this day. I think I probably just right. try a lot of things and see what happens. And once it feels comfortable, I'll, I'll stick with it for a little while. Exactly. But a lot of people, I think the difference between you and a lot of people that I just meet or think about this, look at their story, and you can tell a lot about someone by their story, is that a lot of people, they try different things maybe, um, but then they're not willing to like admit when it's not working for them. Like a lot of people wouldn't have left the law school after a year. They would have finished and been like, oh, I was unless they were failing or something like that, but you right. were failing. You, you just realize, no, this wasn't for me. And then you make that decision to cut bait, which a lot of people I think don't do. And that's probably hopefully why you've led to led you to a good place today. All right, back to the outer yeah. ranks and your family. I'd love to hear the family story. You have an outline in here of all the all your kids. We don't have to say names, but yeah, would love to hear your uh, background and when you started building your family and what you have. Yeah, today. so I'll run through that because I think there are a couple of valuable pieces there, at least from my perspective and the story that's been built around my life. So first of all, met Whitney. She had a two-year-old at that point, Ava. And so I got to be a stepdad really quickly. And like I said, at 30 years old, getting to a point where it seems like, hey, this might be a good time for me to start settling down. Instant family is a way to, to settle down very quickly. Got married. I met her in June. Moved here in May. Met her in June. We were living together by December. We were married the next June. So within a year, we were married. Ava was two and a half, maybe three when we met, you know, almost four by the time we got married. And uh, she ended up taking the Norco name sometime in middle school, which is amazing. So it was just a perfect scenario to really to build a very quick family. Now, with that said, we then followed suit relatively quickly within the next year. My son Finn was born. And so that's the 12 year old that I talk about when I'm talking about sports. He's the guy who's trying to work really hard to be good at sports. So I I enjoyed that side of it. I've got someone who's, I think, pretty similar to me and from a sports work ethic perspective, which is fun because I get to coach him and share the things that I've done over time. Now, the third one is the one that threw us for a loop. So Mac was born two and a half years after Finn. And relatively early, we started to recognize that there were developmental delays. So we had to go through a whole process to figure out what was going on. We ended up with a geneticist ultimately who said to us, look, you're probably not, we're going to do a genetics test. You're probably not going to figure out what this is. Lo and behold, very quickly, we got a results back and we knew exactly what it was. So he's got this rare genetic disorder called SAP-B2 and SAP-B2 is just the gene that is impacted. Now, what I'll say a couple things about this. First, there are probably a lot of people who are not diagnosed. A lot of people who get categorized as autistic that have not done a genetics test in order to figure out whether or not there is a genetics disorder behind whatever their autism diagnosis is. 
and genetics testing is getting better really quickly. Similar to the way that AI is moving really fast. Genetics testing is moving really fast. So if you do a genetics test, they're now able to find a lot more disorders. So as a result of that, you're seeing more disorders come about and they're now calling them by whatever genes that happen to be impacted. That's why this one is called SAPI2. But Mac was the 53rd in the world diagnosed with SAPI2. Now there, I think there's probably somewhere between 500 and 1,000 that have been diagnosed. He's 10, he was diagnosed six and a half years ago. So it's moving relatively quickly. But I would say that if you have anyone in your life who has been diagnosed with autism, but maybe there's something more underlying, I think it's worth it to, to get a genetics test. And not for anything that's going to change your life, but sometimes it's just nice to have an answer and say, hey, who else is out there that has something similar to this? So the doctors have no idea what to expect. You're 53 in the world. They don't know what to tell you to do as a result of this diagnosis. So their suggestion is go out to Facebook and meet the parents and join the group. You're the expert at this point. So once you enter into a world of special needs, especially one that is just newly diagnosed, you as a parent have to become the expert to figure it out. So we spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. And similar to the mindset of all these managers that are trying to figure out how to deal with an economic downturn, you've got to go through that process. You got to figure out denial and figure out what is, how we're going to associate this into our life. So we paused for a while. We, we stopped and we probably would have had more kids pretty quick. I think that both Whitney and I enjoy being parents. We like this process. Ask my youngest now, what's my favorite thing? And he loves to say being a dad. So he, I think that is where my heart truly is on a daily basis. But when you're faced with some challenges like that, you've got to take a pause and figure out what's the bigger picture of what we're trying to accomplish and how is this going to fit into everybody's life? Because it's not just me and Whitney, it's now Ava and Finn and Mac. We've got to determine how does this build over time? Because he's nonverbal. He will be living with us for the rest of our lives. There are some kids who have been put into homes. My goal is never to, to have to go down that road. So my intention is that I'll at some point be his sole provider or caregiver to some degree because he's big. He's 10. He's He's bigger than Finn at 12 already. So there will be a point where I'm, and it's already getting pretty close to that, where I'm going to be the one that, that needs to care for him on a daily basis. But with that said, we paused for a while to assimilate and try to figure out what's our life plan around this. And over time, we started to recognize, you know what, we really do want to have an, another child. And not only that, but we're going to have a kid that lives with us for the rest of our lives. So it's not like you're going to get to this point where you've got all the kids out of the house and now you're going to be empty nesters and you get to go and live this sort of re-newlywed life. Never going to be us. We're always going to have Mac at the house. We're always going to have kids. So we figured, why not? Let's have another one. So this was five years later. Lion was born. And the other part of that is we're going to have people that can help support Mac over time. So it, you start to think about your family a little bit differently. And the kids are definitely changed. We're all different people as a result of the experience. But we also have one more person who can be added to the mix to make sure that we have someone to take care of Mac over the long term. So it was a pretty easy decision once we got to it, but it does take time to walk down that path and think through it and figure out what you want to do. So I don't think there's anything right or wrong, but we're definitely happy. Four is enough. We're done at four, but excited for the next changes. We've got Ava who's going off to college. We've got Lion who's starting in kindergarten. So we will have a college, a college student as well as a kindergarten student at the same time, which is just wild. Yeah, that's a spread. There's no doubt about it. My kids are relatively close in age. Speaking personally, I've got a seven, a four, and a one turning two. Like I feel even there were some gaps in there where we were taking taking our time off for different reasons, obviously. But and we ended up at that conclusion. But also, yeah, four. My my struggle is once they outnumber you, I feel like it's challenging. But it seems like you they outnumbered you and you went ahead and did it again anyway. So I guess 
Yeah, I really enjoy having kids. And I didn't know that I would have, honestly. I grew up in a house. It was just me and my sister. Yeah. When Finn was born, I think I told Whitney, we've got a boy and a girl. We're done. We don't need to do anything else. But then it was right, just so right. fun raising the kids that we decided to keep going. But as far as being outnumbered, because I can definitely understand that, the <laughs> age difference helps because you've got I've got kids that I can rely on. But man, I yeah. can only imagine if you've got multiple in diapers and they're running all over the place. Yes, that can be exceptionally <laughs> challenging. The main trouble, this is the funny part for me. I don't know exactly how it works in your family. My oldest loves the youngest. So the oldest boy loves the little girl, will help her. He literally last night brings her up the stairs. Like he's big enough now where he can hold her, brings her up the stairs and tries to put her in bed like for us, basically. Like, oh, she's tired. We'll put her in bed and stuff. And I'm like, think, and then hates his little brother. So I'm just like, oh goodness. Like he loves one more than anything, hates one more than anything. And I don't know how to square that. So hopefully we can, I can figure it out. Maybe I'll have to I think they square it themselves. One. And it was, I always wanted a brother. I felt like it would have been great to have some to compete against and wrestle with and do all that. I think we, I, I, I miss that. I think our family doesn't necessarily have that because the two that are closest that would have been like that, Mac has, it doesn't fit that role. Changed Finn's perspective on being a brother for sure. But I think that they square it themselves. I think that it's probably a good thing because my guess is that they're probably pretty competitive. My guess is the younger boy will end up being pretty good at whatever the older boy is good at. <laughs> he, the funny part is that sometimes the younger one bullies the older one, which is tough to square sometimes. <laughs> the older one tattles, Liam hit me or whatever. And I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, like you, I have no brothers. I have two older sisters. So I was used to being bullied by a bigger sister, which is a very different dynamic than what our middle one has to deal with for sure. Yeah, exactly. But, I feel like from here, we go in a different direction about your industry experience. And this, I feel like we have a better sense on. So I know we're probably at time here. We might have a little bit more that we can add on or, or button on here before we put a bow on this one. But yeah. then you got really in the industry. Seaside led you to Point Central, led you to Breezeway, led you to Inhabit. And like I said, I think I know that timeline a little bit better. But if there's anything that we haven't covered, I'd love to hear. No, let me, I'll reiterate that timeline a little bit. And I'll yeah. just put a bow on this with where I think everything is headed and why I'm so excited to yeah. be doing what we're exactly. doing. But yes, I, as I mentioned, ended up applying to all those jobs, ended up on the Outer Banks, was director of marketing for Seaside for a number of years, really focused on the new trends of online marketing and shifting all of that very quickly. I was then able to make my way over to Point Central, number three at Point Central behind the two founders. I was the director of sales and marketing for them for about seven years, introduced smart home and keyless access to the industry. Again, trying to think, what is that next step in the industry? How can I be on the front edge of introducing something new? Enjoyed that and then moved over to Breezeway, same concept. Operation software was just coming out. I really felt like that was going to be the next evolution in the industry. Got out in front of that, introduced it to the industry. And then I was fortunate to move over to Inhabit and see that world for a little bit. Was there for a little under a year as the VP of sales across all of their vacation brands. So 10 or 12 brands, which was an interesting experience. I got the inside view of a lot of really good companies while I was there, which is fantastic. It helped me understand the industry and these products also allowed me to network a little bit deeper into these teams, which I'm very thankful for. At the end of the day, my lesson from that one is that big money does not have any emotions. And as we look at this change in the economy and change in this industry, I think everyone out there needs to recognize who's funding and what their exit is and what their strategy is behind that. Because I can tell you that the people who put money into whatever investments are out there are looking to get their money out of it. They're not looking to lose money. So the decisions will be made to make sure that profits are found. And that's not always easy, but I can tell you that there are no emotions behind it. Now, the next step brought me to TAN, which is obviously where we started this whole path. And what I'll say is that I think that we are, the story arc that we've created over the last, whatever, 24 episodes, I think is spot on with where the industry is going. I don't know that I would have 
drawn out this story six months ago, whenever it was that we started thinking through this. But I think as it's evolved, I think this is exactly where the industry is going. And this unreasonable hospitality that we've been talking about for the last few episodes, I am spot on in line with the direction that we're going. I think that it's relatively easy and it's something that we are all very good at in this industry, but we're not maximizing how much we can get out of it. And I mean that in the sense that we talk, the whole Unreasonable Hospitality book is about a restaurant that figured out how to do special things for their patrons who are coming to eat. We ha- And that's just them learning at a quick table while they're serving them, learning about the people that are at their table. I don't share that much at restaurants. So if these guys can get some things out of people that can make it a really special experience, that's awesome. That's amazing. The nice thing about vacation rentals is we know a lot about our guests. We're talking to them a lot. Now, that's assuming that they're not just booking online and showing up without with keyless access and not talking to anybody, because I, I do recognize that's part of the trends. And we'll have to think about how can we make that a little bit more of a fantastic experience. But a lot of times we're interacting with these guests in some way, making the reservation, determining how to research the right homes, or maybe it's on the operation side, they have an issue, or maybe we need to communicate with them. We're touching them and learning about them a lot more than if you're just sitting down at a restaurant eating, eating a dinner and trying to have a server learn about you. So I think that there's a huge opportunity for us as an industry, but specifically with the path that we're on for us as a company to get really good at hospitality. And I think that ultimately is what sets the vacation rental industry apart. And I think it's also what sets professional managers apart from those 2019ers that we talk about. Yeah, no, I think that's a phenomenal place to to end it on. And it's funny because I think that my, my opinion on this is that we should use technology to make things better, that we can make the experience better with technology. So just because they're not coming in the office because they get the keyless lock, just email to them automatically. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. If anything, it should free up a lot of time that reservationists used to deal with that key handoff or whatever. This was years ago. I was once in an office here in South Carolina uh, on a Friday and they were like, yeah, we're getting ready. We've got all the keys with the names on them and they're writing it down. This was pre-keyless access. This wasn't that long ago. This would have been 20. 2015, I think, 2014, that time frame. And they were like, yeah, all the customers, guests are going to come by, pick up their keys. We get to talk to them for a minute. And I was like, huh, that seems very inefficient. But at the time I was like, I guess that's the way to do it. And it, it, just because that's gone away doesn't mean that you can't recreate that in some other form. Like even some of the messaging tools do this where they book and then just, there's just a simple autoresponder. Oh, thank you so much for booking, Adam. What brings you to the area? Like just that could be an automation. But then what you do with that reply is where the hospitality comes into play. So I think I'm not one of these people who's like, all technology bad or all technology good. I think technology is just a tool and the way that you wield that tool or the way that you wield that automated messaging is and what you do with it is ultimately what makes you more hospitable or less hospitable. That's I agree thing. 100%. If we've shifted that from forcing them to come out of their way to come to the office so I can say hi to you <laughs> for 30 seconds, let's use yeah. that time in a different way to really create a great vacation experience. Now, the other part I'll say is that I think that what we need to move to, because what you and I tend to talk about, what, what we talk about on this podcast is vacation rental specific. Like this is what we do in this industry. I think what we really ultimately will get to is thinking about the vacation as an experience, not just the home. The home is the tool that gets them here, but we have the ability and the opportunity to think about hospitality as a full vacation experience. I don't think we're there yet, but I think that's the direction that the industry is headed. 
Yeah. Let's cover that on a future episode then. So I think that's a phenomenal bridge and we'll definitely cover that on a future one. I think this is fantastic, Adam. We'll place a bow on this one. And it's great to hear your story. Like I said, we've talked and we've met at conferences and things like that. Usually talk shop, right? Usually talk industry. But it's great to hear a little, get a little snapshot of you, get a little background on you. And I'm sure the listeners will get some value out of it as well. Thanks so much for listening. We'll beg for reviews at the end as we always do. So if you stuck around this long, you must love Adam. You have to love Adam. Just leave me a review. Yeah, just give Adam a review. You know, that, that's all we're asking for. So thanks so much. Give us, subscribe to us on any, in your podcast app of choice. Leave us a rating, give us a review. We appreciate it. And Adam, thank you so much for sharing you and yourself and your background as we put a bow on this one. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks, Conrad.